0: Welcome to New Books and Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today I'll be speaking with Robert Matson, author of the book, Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, published in 2016 by Goodnight Books. While many fans of classic films know of Jimmy Stewart's movies, few are... Welcome to New Books and Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I'll be speaking with Robert Matson, author of the book Mission Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, published in 2016 by Goodnight Books. While many fans of classic films know of Jimmy Stewart's movies, few are aware of what he contributed to the war effort. Matson discusses Stewart's military background and how his World War II experiences affected his career. Welcome to Robert Matson. Hey, Robert, it's great to talk to you.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Now, we know that many celebrities went into the service during World War II, but there haven't been what I've seen many books about their experiences and how they affected their lives. So your book, I found to be incredibly uh, moving for that purpose, plus all the information you provide. But let's talk about your background first. Uh, Before we did the recording, I was talking a little bit about doing a little bit of research, and you've certainly had an interesting career so far, so why don't you give me a little bit of background of what led you to becoming a writer?
1: Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and um, coming out of college, I had my first book published by Bantam Books, and it was a book about how to do research because I had a history degree and I I really liked doing research, so that was a mass market paperback in the last century sometime, and um and then I this is my seventh book the Stewart book, um I found my niche I think in Hollywood books that actually have an aviation theme, which is quite the sub genre, but um. I My sixth book, which was really sort of a breakthrough, was called Fireball, and it was about the plane crash that killed Carol Lombard and 21 others near Las Vegas in 1942, right after the beginning of World War II. And I had one of the first um people, media guys, who interviewed me uh, about that book said, are you a pilot? Because the aviation stuff rings so true. And I really... I thought that was a great compliment and, and no, I'm not a pilot, but I, I'm sort of an aviation buff and I got a lot of grounding in that working in NASA aeronautics, um, for 10 years, um, doing communications for NASA and, and, uh, being with really smart people in facing aeronautics challenges that are ongoing. And, um, and so, I got to combine that interest with my love of Hollywood history, and the Carol Lombard book was very well received, and I was looking for another theme that would combine Hollywood history and aviation, and I was dumbfounded to realize that no one had really looked at Jimmy Stewart's World War II career. as a combat pilot. There was one book that came out that was written by, um, a a colleague of his, a fellow officer in the eighth air force, but it was really superficial and it did not go into a mission by mission account. And so I, that was my starting point was to see, can I find the records of each of his combat missions so that I can actually recreate them? And when I found out that I could, um, that was the jumping off point for me, and, and, I, uh, and I set to work. And so in a nutshell, that's, that's my entire career from uh, my first mass market paperback, Research Made Easy in the Last Century, to my new book on Jimmy Stewart.
0: Well, if it means anything, I'm a history major as well and work in a library, so I understand the research side quite well, so I <laughs> yeah. understand that point. Have worked in libraries, public and academic, for my entire career. So I understand the the joys of research. So, yeah. I've I've,
1: I've dealt with a lot of you people over the years. No, some of my best friends have been uh, those who unearthed information for me.
0: And you did actually, and this is something we'll talk about, you bring up some of the research and how you were able to do quite a bit of it. Yeah, I recently interviewed an uh, an author, Sue Matheson, who wrote a book about John Ford. And one of the points she made was how Ford changed after World War II and how you could see the difference with his work from before and after. And of course, that's one of your primary themes. Um, why Jimmy Stewart? I mean, obviously, you indicated that uh, you were surprised that uh, there were no detailed books on his on his career. Um his uh career in, during World War II. But what 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 was it about Jimmy Stewart in particular that made you decide to choose him?
1: Um I am not a Jimmy Stewart fan. I'm going to, on the book tour, I think that's gonna be my lead on every lecture I give is that I am not I did not go into this a Jimmy Stewart fan. I'm not a fanboy I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have this burning ambition to tell his story or whatever. I just thought, here is the most talked about World War II Hollywood combat figure. And and what I went into this thinking was, is he the real deal or was a lot of this, you know, PR generated? You know, was he a, a tin soldier like Clark Gable was to a large degree and... Did you know, what was his service really like? And um and so that's what started me doing the digging. Plus we have some things in common, Stuart and I. We both grew up in small southwestern Pennsylvania college towns. Um, he grew up in Indiana PA, I grew up in California PA. Um and no so originality I understand-
0: in Pennsylvania, you have to come up you have to use other states for your town names? <laughs>
1: You know, I always
0: was embarrassed by the fact that my town was called California,
1: Pennsylvania. So let's let's just not go there. But <laughs> um, there's a mindset that goes with that. You know, that small town Pennsylvania coal country mindset that he had and that I have, and and I was, you know, there's little kinship there. And and so um, while I wasn't a fan of his movies per se. Um, I understood the guy going in a little bit at least from that. And, um, and so I – oh, here's my cat again. The cat's on my lap. The cat's <laughs> going down. Um, I, uh, I, I really can't give you a great answer as to why Stuart, except that I, I start out with a burning question. And the question this time was, was he a genuine hero or was he a manufactured hero? And three years later I can g- give you a definitive answer.
0: Um or should I make you read the book? No. Which, that's book? fine. No? We can read the book. No, i no you you're you're pretty clear right from the beginning, so that's okay. <laughs> you don't it's not a mystery story, basically.
1: Right, right. And yeah, he was the real deal and, and there are so many layers to that because he he uh He didn't want the spotlight. Once he entered the military, he entered the military one month after he won the Best Actor Academy Award. (laughs) And once he entered it, he didn't want to look out, look back. He didn't want to talk to the press. He didn't want to do anything but be a soldier. And then he went overseas. And it, it was hard for him to get overseas because MGM, his home studio, didn't want him to go. And the U.S. government didn't want him to go because what good could come of a hollywood actor being shot down as a pilot over europe uh, and either killed or worse captured by the germans so there was there was there was great reason to keep him stateside he was much older than the other pilots in uh, the army air forces well i mean much older like 10 years or more older Um, which meant, you know, slower reflexes. Um, Was he up to the physical demands of being a pilot? Um, uh, So against all those odds, he got himself overseas. He got himself in combat, and he flew 20 missions and slowly came apart at the seams, as so many people did, because of the rigors of these missions. And, um, And so, you know, I have nothing... But admiration for what the guy accomplished. After all the research I did and the people I talked to.
0: Well, of course, now this is your second book. Now dealing with people from that period, of course, given that Fireball, we're talking about the same, um, you know, actors from forties and fifty, you know, thirties, forties, fifties in that period. Um, I, I guess I'm questioned I'm wondering, did. Uh, is that a period of movies that you particularly enjoy, or is it just a matter that in this particular case you were able to find a lot of material dealing with Stewart, and so that helped make the decision for you as well?
1: No, I'm really a golden age Hollywood guy. Um, I I wrote two books before Fireball about Errol Flynn, you know, the swashbuckling actor, mm-hmm. and, and the second of those was also about Olivia de Havilland.
0: Um, I was still with had. us.
1: Yes, she is at 100 going strong.
0: Or at least in uh, when we're doing this interview, sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I just have had a burning interest since I was a teenager in old Hollywood. And, and so it's natural for me to, to live and breathe and walk around in that time frame and, and write about it and use their lingo and their technology. I'm perfectly comfortable there.
0: One of the things that I, this is something that I think it's forgotten in the old, you know, we're talking about a period of time, especially the World War II uh, vets, and, and during that period, you know, the group that have been dubbed the greatest generation. And one of the things that I think we tend to forget, or I think tends to get forgotten, is that when we talk about PTSD, for example, with Vietnam veterans and Iraq veterans and Afghan veterans, well, there's no way in the world you couldn't believe that the World War II veterans went through the same thing. The difference was when they came home, as you've pointed out with Stewart, they didn't want to talk about it or they wouldn't talk about it.
1: Right. And um and that hasn't changed, you know. Uh any war produces people who can't talk about it and see things that no one should see and um and face fears and either overcome them or worse not overcome them. Um, so uh, Stuart came back suffering from they called it being flack-happy if you were a flyer and had flown too many missions or they call it combat fatigue or they call it um, shell shock.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but whatever it was, he suffered it like everybody else just because of, of having... You know, not only are you flying into a hail of bullets or anti-aircraft fire, but you're also, you're also facing the strain, in his case, of leading other men and making decisions that affect their lives because he was a, a flight commander. He was older, and he um, had good leadership skills, so he was in the front of his squadron or his group, and he was making making the calls in the air. He was like the quarterback, and he was guiding the other um, flyers on the mission. And some of those guys got shot down. Some of the guys in his squadron were killed. And he had to face that guilt because he was a perfectionist. He had to face that guilt for the rest of his life. What did I do? What could I have done differently that would have saved this guy's life or that guy's life? These guys that I had trained with and knew and led in combat. Um, so that's one of the things that he faced when he came home, too, the fact that he came home and some of his guys didn't.
0: So the the first part of the book, well, you do a, a real brief introduction at the beginning of him after the war, you know, working on a film specifically. We'll talk about the film later because mm-hmm. it is, I think, quite apt that the film, first film he made after he came out of the war was It's a Wonderful Life. But uh, before that, though, the 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 much of the early part of the book is a bio it's basically a biography of, of Stuart's early life and one of the things you talk about is the importance of the service the military service to his family what were some of the things that he had going on in his mind that uh as far as what what might be expected of him as uh, a fa- from a family of servicemen
1: well um his family Service went all the way back to the American Revolution, and uh, both of his grandfathers had served in the Civil War. And one of them, one of them, died right before he was born. And the other one, who had uh, fought under Custer and Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley in some really tough battles, lived until Jim was well into his twenties, like twenty-five years old. And so Jim grew up like literally on the knee of a man who had lived history and fought battles and would tell his grandson what it was like to you know what it was like to be with Custer riding with Custer for crying out loud you know how can you even imagine something like that so he had a lot to live up to and his father had gone off adventuring to the Spanish American war and and that was a very short lived experience and you know that wasn't much of a war as wars go and i don't think he saw any service i think he was in in uh uh harm's way for like three days or something and so his father alex had this burning ambition to serve like his father had and so when World War I came along, he became a captain of ordnance and went off to serve in the lowlands. And, and he, did, he didn't get to the front lines, but he was near enough to the front lines in this horrific war to come back a battle-scarred veteran. And so Jim had the pressure of, of two grandfathers who were like heroes, you know, uh, and a father who had been a captain in the army and scene action and and Alex was all about Alex was a tough guy. I mean a, a tough, kinda crazy, kind of a crazy guy. I'm glad he wasn't my dad, but um he, he really pushed service on his son. You know, you must do this. And so you know it was it was Jim's mindset from he he, he is a little kid. His father goes off to war when he's like nine. And his mother's making him uniform so he can be just like his dad. And he's having plays in his basement about, you know, uh, the war. And, and he's using artifacts sent back from his dad, like German trench helmets in his plays about how bad the Huns are. And, uh, and so it was always in his head. It, it was always there. I've got to go and fight in a war. And, and you know, from 1932 on, when Hitler started to rise to power... It, Everybody seemed to know that sooner or later there was going to be a war and uh and he started to get ready for it
0: because as you point out the the parallel of not only all of this uh, you know the 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 military part but then also his burgeoning career as an actor, as you point out that his his first experiences as a as an actor was in his basement doing war plays but uh he went from there and, and while all of this was going, you know, that the military part was in, was in the background, so to speak, he was also starting what turned out to be pre pre war a pretty successful career.
1: Yeah. And, and he, he sort of backed into it because he didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up either. Um, he, he studied uh, several different things and the last was to be an architect at Princeton and he graduated with a degree in that and but he didn't really have any urge to do that and much to his father's chagrin he started this acting business you know as a as a an activity at school and really liked it and became friends with other actors and it was like horrific it was horrible for alex to see his son you know become this you know nomad Uh, going around in plays and touring the country in plays and then going to Hollywood and and really not having a real job because Alex ran a hardware business in coal country so that was a real job but Jim was of a completely different mindset, Um, always a conservative sort of a guy in some ways but still a, a liberal in other ways like just being an actor, you know, um, that's, that's a a much different way to be. And, and so he ended up in Hollywood with his best friend, Henry Fonda, who would also come from New York to Hollywood. And, um, and both of them just had this meteoric rise to stardom against all odds, because here are these two string beans, um, you know, six, three, six, four, both extremely underweight, both introverted, um, very quiet sort of guys, and, and they become Hollywood stars. It's crazy, but uh, that's what happened.
0: Yeah, because one of the things that you... one of the places you go early on is discuss who some of the folks that he knew, you know, he met early on, and how it's unbelievable when you think about it that a group of people that all became so well-known and so famous for good reason, they all had good, te- you know, they all had great talent. But I mean, even people like, uh, you know, Burgess Meredith and and every time I was reading a page and I says, wow, I didn't know that they were all in the, you know, they all had a certain amount of uh, similarities as far as how they came through and that they actually knew each other and and uh, roommating at some times. And it's just unbelievable to see how all of those folks during that period interrelated to each other.
1: Yeah, um, like Burgess Meredith, um, of course, played the Penguin in Batman. <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know if that's how people know him or not, but uh, he had a long and distinguished career. Uh, you probably know him more screen. from
0: Rocky now than that.
1: Well, that's true. That's right. That's right, because I wasn't a big Rocky fan, but yes, he was He was in that. Um, and, and Fonda, of course, had a tremendous career. He didn't make as many pictures that you'd think he made, but he made a lot of pictures, and he remained friends with Stuart um, throughout the course of their lives to the, to the very end for Fonda when he died of cancer. And, um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, uh, you lost, I lost it. I just lost it. Uh, okay. so let's go on.
0: <laughs> and then of course the stories that you, the early stories that you have about Margaret Sullivan as well during this period.
1: Yeah. Uh, she was quite the pistol and, um, uh, Fonda married her and then Stuart became terribly infatuated with her. The the Fonda marriage didn't last but a few months really. She she was a a wild sort of a girl and um and and Stuart it was the biggest mismatch ever. I mean there was really no reason why Stuart would want someone who was flamboyant and outgoing and and everything that she was and, and flighty and narcissistic. But he really fell for her. He was young and she was very vivacious and And that was the first love of his life. And, um, and it's, it's so odd that, you know, he never married her. She kept marrying his best friends. Uh, Leland Hayworth, the, uh, the Hollywood agent and, and theatrical producer, she married him after she married Fonda. And, um, and Stewart remained very close to this woman that he couldn't have, although there was talk that, you know before she married Hayward that they had had a physical affair which i believe i think i think he was he was very sexualist maybe we'll talk about but um but it ended up that he wasn't with her but he always carried
0: a torch for her of course the other thing that you talk about early on particularly when he was young and this had it actually worked out for him that he grew up his growing came at the same time that the airplane grew, and he grew right along with that. What, was, what, was, what were some of his early experiences with flying?
1: Well, um, if, as you recall, um, I start some of my chapters with, you know, Jimmy Stewart had to fly. And, you know, some people are born to fly, and he was one of those guys. And he realized it as early as during World War I, the Great War, as they called it then, um, so he's he's nine years old, and he's captivated by pictures of airplanes. You know, Matt, he talked about having magazine covers of that showed airplanes in the context of World War One, and how he would put them on his wall, and he would build model planes. And before he ever went up in a plane, he he was just fixated on aviation and on airplanes, and um, and so. He hatched a scheme to actually go up in an airplane and, and he achieved that when some of these World War I flyers would go around barnstorming and they would earn their living by taking people up for rides in their planes. And, uh, and so a plane came to Indiana, PA, and Jim talked his father into um, letting him go up. And that wasn't easy because Alex wanted no part of that. And in fact, when Jim did talk him into it and save up enough money from working at the hardware store to go up in a plane, um, Alex brought a doctor along <laughs> in case the plane crashed. And it didn't. And, uh, and Jim went up four or five times with barnstorming pilots over the next few years. And, and he was hooked. And he was going to be a pilot one way or another. And it, it took him all the way until he was in Hollywood in 1935 And the first thing he did when he had enough money and had signed a studio contract was to take flying lessons. And before long, he had bought his own airplane. And for the next, you know, well into the 1980s, he continued to fly. So that's 50 years in the air.
0: So before we start talking about the specifics of most of the book, which is um, stories, basically, of of his career in the military, and I'm going to call it a career, even though it wasn't his real career. He certainly lived a life in the military that counted as a career. What kind of information, or what kind of uh, research did you have to do to pull together so much varied information that you were able to to get so much details about his, uh, his life in the military?
1: Well, um, as I said, I started with the U.S. Army Air Force's records, and it's not like I went and sifted through all those myself. Any smart uh, project leader is going to delegate, and I had, I had a researcher on the ground um, in D.C. She knows all the ins and outs. She knows every cubbyhole, and she found in short order the records of the U.S. Army Air Forces, and I gave her a list of the missions. And his squadron and his bomb group, and she found everything for me. That was the starting point. Um, another government facility has his, uh, complete personnel file. It's like 500 pages, and I got that. And so, armed with those two things, I could create an outline of, of his step by step progress from induction in Los Angeles to mustering out in New York City um, and the uh, four full years in between. Um, Then there are, of course, existing books and magazine articles and diaries from people who flew with him, quite a number of them. And then what I didn't expect to find was people still living who flew with him during the war. And that was the most exciting part is like, to talk to, um, I found three guys, almost four, but I found three guys who, uh, actually flew with him. Two were co-pilots in his squadron and so had done a lot of flying with him, some of them on missions. And, and they really gave me the inside story on not only what was he like, what was Stuart like as a combat officer and as a leader, but what was the war like? What was a B-24 like? Um, and that was another thing that I did, which was, how can you write a book about World War II bombers without flying in World War II bombers? So I went up in a B-17 and a B-24 and, um, and sat with the pilot and co-pilot and crawled down into the bomb bay, uh, and crawled into the, the front compartment where the bombardier and the navigator sat and went back into the tail turret. And I mean, so, there it 's a three hundred and sixty degree experience to create something like this that 's going to be authentic um and it's it 's talking to people and it 's going out oh, and that 's another thing it was I had to go to England to the little village in East Anglia where his base was during the toughest combat missions, and I did that, and I walked that ground and I went into his um his quarters there against all odds, are still standing, and, and to go in there and to, to feel the damp cold, just like he felt it, you know, after all of that, I I had what I needed to write um, what I thought was an authentic account of his wartime experience.
0: So basically, we've got the story of Stewart. We've got the story of Stuart as... Um, as a military man, and then also the story to an extent of aviation in World War Two, and it's it's an interesting I think sometimes we think of World War II uh, you know we, we get the stories of that, and of course things like um, ground troops are, are well known, but the, it's un, it is interesting how much the air part of the war how important the air war was to World War II.
1: Yeah, um, people re- I didn't realize, you know, people don't realize in general that until D-Day, the war in Europe was entirely an air war. The The fight for France and the fight in Germany was entirely an air war and it was the U.S. Army Air Forces bombing by day and the British, the RAF bombing by night. Um, the the U.S. Army Air Forces bombing strategic targets and trying to avoid hitting civilians. The RAF bombing by night and not caring who the hell they hit. The more civilians they killed, the better, as far as the Brits were concerned. Because you know um, Hitler had sent the Luftwaffe to uh, bomb England. That's what started the war, really. That's what started the war for 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 Britain was the battle for Britain. And so 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 much infrastructure had been damaged, so many people had been killed, and the killing had been indiscriminate that the RAF wanted to take that right back to Germany and give it back to them. But the U.S. had a completely different mindset, and so they were bombing by day, and they were doing it to hit the military targets that were going to bring the war to an end, and they were going to do it at a tremendous price because they were... (laughs) They were bombing in, in broad daylight in these giant lumbering, you know, um, it's like taking a train in the air at 20,000 feet. It's just this biggest, easiest to hit target in the world, and yet here are these young guys going over and doing just that. And that was the really brutal war um, that America was fighting in the air over Europe uh, in 1943 and 1944.
0: So, how closely was Stewart following what was going on in Europe in the 30s? You mentioned it briefly before, but um, was it something that was on his radar, no pun intended? I mean, was this something that he knew? You mentioned he knew, or it seemed like he knew he was event. The the belief was the United States was eventually, or there was eventually going to be a war. Obviously, 32 33, it was still far off. But was Stewart paying attention during this period? I mean, was he expecting. Uh, himself that things were going to get worse. America was
1: an isolationist country in through the 30s and even into the early 40s. You know, there were people did not want to get into a war and it, it was being avoided as much as possible and and still Stewart had the mindset. You know, he had his father's mindset, he had his grandfather's mindset. And and he was a very aware person, he was a very smart guy. And he and he when he bought his airplane, he bought a Stinson that was the kind of airplane that the army pilots were training on, and I'm talking about in nineteen thirty seven we're talking about regular army peacetime army um, pilots were training in Stinson, so that's why he bought a Stinson, and that's why he logged hours and he logged acrobatic hours because that was going to be important to be a combat pilot and you know, he, he, takeoffs and landings and, and navigation and flying by instruments. I mean, he did all of that because he knew, uh, what was coming. And that's as of 1936, 1937, 1938. Um, so yes, I mean, it was very much on his radar, no pun intended, that, uh, that a war was coming and that he needed to keep abreast of it. He also went to Europe a lot of people don't know this but in 1939 he went to Europe and and there's really no documentation on what he did there but i just get the feeling he was getting the lay of the land because he knew what was coming
0: so so the war obviously pearl harbor december 7th that's when the united states is officially in world war 2 we obviously the initial port was was against japan but very quickly Germany declared war on the United States, and so therefore the United States was now fighting both countries. But the, Euro, the, the, the European war was on for the United States. What did Stuart do during this period, and how quickly did he decide it was time to go?
1: Well, um, let's see. Yeah, December 741 was Pearl Harbor. He was already in the military for nine months. Uh, there was because it was so clear by the beginning of 1941, actually it was so clear in 1940 that war was coming that they instituted a draft and, uh, and you know, the the pool is however many million men and Stewart's draft number was number 300 and he called it winning the lottery. And so he got to go in the service uh, and, and imagine Louis B. Mayer, the, the head of MGM finding out that what one of my one of my most profitable actors wants to go in the military and that wasn't gonna fly, but it did. I mean, he he gleefully tried to go enter the service and was turned down because he was underweight because he was imagine this. I mean, here he is. He's six three. He's either six three or six four and the vary, but he was at least six foot three and he weighed 140 pounds. And there's no way that's gonna look healthy. And so he got turned down, and he um, he carefully schemed his way. He, he had to get around that. He had to serve. He had to go into service. And so he went to military doctors, and he had them draft a letter that says, this guy is healthy. He just – it's just his – it's just his body type is just very thin and – and he got that in writing. I have that document. It was in his personnel file for, you know, all these years. And he used that thing. He wielded that letter and he got himself inducted in March of 1941, nine months before Pearl Harbor. And so he was already a corporal, uh, by the time the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December. And what did they do? They did it by air. And he knew that this was going to be an air war and how important aviation was going to be. And he was going to be in the thick of it because he was going to be a pilot.
0: It sounds like they could have taken his attempt to get into the military and used it for the opening of Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> the same concept. He gets, oh, yeah. keeps getting refused but finds a way to get in anyway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, of course, probably by the time the war actually started, it probably wouldn't have been as difficult to get in as it turns out. Did he was he flying right at the beginning early on in his military career or did that come later?
1: He had to earn his wings. You know, he he started out uh he started out um training uh doing his own training and then he became a trainer when he became a corporal he was drilling other troops. He was stuck on the ground though until he earned his wings and that was uh at the turn of 1942, he became a second lieutenant. Uh, he had logged the necessary hours, and then he took his flight test. And that was a very specific thing, where you had to to do all these, you know, aerial maneuvers and take off and land and do very specific things. And he, of course, he aced that because he had spent so many years preparing for this moment. And uh, so then he was a second lieutenant, and quickly became a an instructor because he was. At this time, 35, 36 years old, all the pilots coming in were 20. So here he is, this older guy. He becomes a a flight instructor in single-engine aircraft, then twin-engine aircraft, then four-engine heavy bombers. Works as when he he becomes a a four-engine rated pilot, he becomes a captain. And so he's on this tremendous track to stay stateside and stay safe and just train all these guys who would go off and fight. And that just did not sit well with him at all, and he would not take that for his military career. And, um, and so uh, he was a pilot pretty early on, to answer your question, and then he took it from there.
0: When was his actual first mission?
1: When he finally uh, got the backing of some key officers uh, who were full colonels, lieutenant colonels, full colonels. Uh, to get him overseas, and i still don 't quite know how they accomplished it i mean i don 't know how they stuck their ne- they stuck their necks out that far first of all and 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 how they got permission for Stuart to go but Stuart went overseas in november of forty three and he flew his first mission in on december thirteenth nineteen forty three at a time when it was still really dicey to go across the channel or go across the North Sea and bomb Germany because the the German defensive forces were very capable and, and it, it got, it got less dangerous as the months went on, but the initial missions were <laughs> quite harrowing and, um, and in German winter too. And that, that was another, that's another thing that uh, just, just blew me away that, I don't know, I don't know if your questions are going to go there anyway, but it's, it's, 20,000 feet in an unpressurized cabin in, in European winter. Um, so it's, it's at a minimum of 30 below zero at 20,000 feet. And in your, in, with the air coming straight through the fuselage because you've got gun ports that aren't covered. And, uh, and so imagine what that's like. And the missions are seven or eight hours in length. Uh, so you do the math on that. Um, these guys, I don't want to call them the greatest generation. I have my own theories about that, but I will say that these were tough guys and, um, and they did incredible things.
0: So, um, obviously, so we're really, then what's even more unbelievable, you, you talked about the number of missions he went on. It was in a very compressed period of time. If his first mission was the end of 1943, that means he had to have done all of his missions in less than two years
1: yeah and really he did his first dozen missions in his first 3 months of flying and um and those were the ones that marked him and scarred him the worst uh because they were some of the toughest uh that you can imagine um the there was a mission his his worst one of his toughest missions was to Gotha and on uh during um this concentrated effort to hit the German aviation industry, it was called Big Week and it was February 1944. Um, on February 24th, 1944, uh, his bomb group was decimated in a raid over Gotha. And, uh, it, it, it I, you read the book, so you know what the official description was of what that battle was like, that aerial battle with planes blowing apart and, and, flyers coming out of their own ships without parachutes and, and banging into the windscreens of the ships below. And I mean, it was just hell on earth. And he wasn't on that mission, but he he watched the planes limp home that made it back. And then he had to fly the next day. And he talked about one of the rare things he ever talked about about his military career was that night and what it was like knowing he had to go back to Gotha the next day after what had happened to so many of the guys that he knew and the flyers he had flown with, and how many planes didn't come back, and what it was like to get in the air the next day and go back and bomb the same place again. Uh, too many experiences like that for him. And and just imagine uh, that that is the guy you see in it. It's a Wonderful Life, That is the guy. That's what's locked up in his head is everything that he had been through, things like Gotha and and other missions like that.
0: So um, I think you said 20 missions, but that number, what does that mean? I mean, I know we talk about 20. I mean, how is that as far as in comparison? I mean, obviously the point is clear that that was a large number of missions. But to give us a scope what does that mean to have flown 20 missions during World War II?
1: Well, um, I talked to two the two co pilots that I mentioned that I talked to uh, that had flown with Stewart. One, okay, so Stewart flew his first mission on December 13th, 1943. One of the guys I talked to flew um, a couple of missions and was shot down on December. 29th of 43. So he was shot down 16 days after Stuart flew his first mission, which was the first mission of that whole bomb group. Uh, This guy was shot down 16 days later. The other guy, who was co pilot, was shot down seven days past that. So, I mean, surviving to 20 missions was very much against the odds at this time in the war because, you know, you've got the best Air Force in the world trying to shoot you down and the best gunners on the ground trying to shoot you down, plus you're in the B-24 Liberator, which was maybe the most dangerous plane for the guys flying it in World War Two. It was a flying bomb, and that was one thing that I didn't know until I talked to the guys who had ridden in it and operated it, that it had fuel leak problems, and they were they were systemic problems, and they fixed it, they would fix it sort of with every new version of the B-24 that came along, but, but these were the B-24Hs they were flying, and they were still very dangerous. One spark, and boom, you're gone. You know, the, the, You're gone. The plane is gone. There's no trace ever found of you because the plane has blown into a million pieces, and that happened to one of his pilots. There still is no there is no way to tell what happened to Earl Metcalf and his crew because their B-24 just vanished because it blew up in the air. And uh, so making it to 20 missions uh, was against the odds and he had a couple of near misses, Stuart did, where he, there is no reason he should have lived. But he, he did make it to 20 missions and it was quite an accomplishment.
0: So let's, let's obviously most of the book – Just you know, is to just is a review after the biography. You know, once getting into the military and into the into the war itself, and then of course most of the book are stories about or, or stories about these various missions and some of his other experiences. Obviously, that's most of the book. Which it's just the good thing is is the amount of detail you were able to find made it possible to create some incredible pictures of, of what it must have been like. What was, light, what was daily life like for him during this period around the missions?
1: Well, it, when he was a squadron leader, he was a captain of the 703rd Squadron in the 445th Bomb Group, he was always involved with either training his men or preparing them for missions or debriefing them afterwards, and that would be daily when he moved up to become the operations officer of the 453rd bomb group which was a group that wasn't it wasn't exactly in trouble but it was a fatigued group that was just up the road from from his base and he went there to try to um just you know try to instill some of the precision flying in that group that he had instilled in the 445th and so as an operations officer he was doing a lot more of the uh preparing the crews and, um, and briefing the missions and briefing the crews that would go off. And he was doing less flying. And so he became more of a, of a staff type officer and more of a desk type officer. The farther he went into the war until the point where he, he was flying very little, uh, because of the stress. He, at the beginning, he was flying every few days and before too long. I mean, in the course of months. He was flying maybe twice a month. He would miss rotations because of the cumulative effect at his age, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes, his age of 36 and 37 years old, being so much older, the missions being so grueling, that he he actually flew less and less and was involved in, in, in briefing crews and all of the logistical things on the ground more and more.
0: Now... I know it really isn't so much part of the book, but I have to ask um, the people that he worked with and led and part of his. Did he continue to have contact with them after the war?
1: Uh, You would think that the answer would be yes, but it was from a distance uh, because uh, he was a very private person. And as much as he loved these guys and loved the shared experience of going through the war with them and called it the most vivid time of his life and the most important time of his life and the best time of his life, as much as he said all that, being the private person that he was, and being the um you know the star that he was, he kept his distance and and it, it made his guys the guys that I talked to feel bad I mean it did because. They loved him and they were proud that they flew with him. And they would have been so happy if he had come to their weddings or if he, you know, they would invite him places, but he just wouldn't do it. It just wasn't his style. He did keep his distance. And, well, I understand. I'm an introvert. I keep my distance.
0: It's interesting the concept of a Hollywood star being an introvert, but believe it or not, you know, from the readings I've done and the people I've interviewed uh, over. He's like doing these interviews, especially during. Most of the people I've interviewed probably are. A lot of the biographical ones have been for this period, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, and introversion is not that surprise. You know, it's normal, even though it may seem surprising that that somebody who's an actor and a famous one at that could be considered an introvert.
1: Yeah, and may see, he was he performed. He was a performer. He liked being other people. He didn't really like being him as much as he liked being other people. And he also had a very short attention span and, and he was easily bored. And that's something that people don't think about with Jimmy Stewart, but it's true. Um, he, he would get bored, which is why he could never be an architect, but he could play a different guy, a different person, you know, every six or eight weeks, then take some time off, and then play another person for six or eight weeks. It's perfect for a person with a short attention span or a person who's easily bored. Uh, And that was another facet to his character.
0: So the book obviously emphasizes the actual war period, but I don't want to get away from what in the end was uh how did the war affect his career you don't go into a lot of detail because that's not part of the story so to speak but we ob- you obviously talk about the film that and we mentioned it earlier that came out that hit this first film after the war which of course was it's a wonderful life which he made with Frank Capra who of course also had his own wartime experiences right uh, what were those i mean how did that come about was it a matter that uh it just happened to be the first film afterwards, or was it something that came out special because of, for a variety of reasons, that he was the one who was going to be in that film? I know he and Capra already had a relationship, but uh, what led to It's a Wonderful Life?
1: Well, Stuart came back uh, from the war having aged tremendously. I, I have a side-by-side photos in the book of, of Stuart in 1942 and Stuart in 1944, and And the one is this young guy, you know, with rosy cheeks and and looking great. And the next is this haggard old man, (laughs) which was him at his worst after, you know, flying uh, too many missions in too short a time. And he came back and like people like his parents took one look at him. They hadn't seen him for a couple, two and a half years. They hadn't seen him. And oh, my God, this is my son and uh henry fonda looked at him and said oh my god you know who who is this guy because he had aged so badly and all of a sudden he wasn't going to be able to play you know the vibrant young leading man that he had been playing the boy next door he wasn't the boy next door he was the troubled man next door and uh and so he didn't know plus he came back to a hollywood where there there were new leading men you know there was Dana Andrews had come along, and Cornell Wilde, and George Montgomery, and, and, and Bert Lancaster was just about to make it big, and so was Kirk Douglas, and, and these guys had all filled in the spots of the men who had gone off to fight the war, and so Stuart didn't know you know where he fit, because he was no longer young. Uh, he, he was only, uh, what was he, he was only 37 or 38, but he felt older. And he looked older, and um, he, he didn't get any offers when he came back. And the only offer that he had was Louis B. Mayer, his old boss, wanting to make the Jimmy Stewart story about his time in service, and he refused. He decided right away when he came back and, and hit U.S. shores he was never going to use his service to promote his film career. And he had it written into every contract thereafter that that you must not talk about my service when you do flack publicity through my picture. Um, so uh, he had no job offers. And it was four or five months. Okay. Stand by. Stand by. <laughs> my wife is coming in. Um, I'm still on this interview, okay? Okay.
0: All right. My word. my wife's walked in on mine, too, on my end, too, so I understand. Oh, there you
1: are. Okay, so I'm just going to wait till she sets down the Chinese that's going to be our dinner. Okay, that's done. All right, so. Um, we were
0: talking about how It's a Wonderful Life came along. Right.
1: So he is sitting around Hollywood. He is back from the war. Henry Fonda is back from the war. Fonda served in the Pacific, um, Stewart served in Europe. Fonda was in the Navy, Stewart was in the Air Forces. And they had sort of the time of their lives because neither, they both had to just sort of get back into the Hollywood culture that they had been away from for years and Hollywood had to get used to them again, having them around. So they listened to records, they made model airplanes, they flew kites. <laughs> you know, they, they started to date around, or, or Stuart did. Um, Fonda was married. Um, Fonda's wife. Was sick to death of having Stuart around the house because Stuart came back to Hollywood having nowhere to live. And Fonda said, Hey, come, come stay with us. No problem. My wife doesn't mind. Well, she minded. And she wanted to get rid of of Stuart in the worst way. And finally, Frank Capper, who was back from the war, as you said, um, called Stuart and said, You know, I have an idea for a picture. It's kind of crazy you want to talk about it, and Stuart was like, Sure, because Stewart saw Capra as the gold standard of Hollywood directors, and they had had a lot of success together and so um they sat down over dinner and uh, uh, Stewart's new agent was there, and um Capra tried to tell this story of a guy who wants to commit suicide, but there's an angel who needs to earn his wings who tries to keep the guy from committing suicide. And, and he tells this story and Stuart, is, Stuart had made Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, you know, a, a real blood and guts sort of a political picture, a very grounded in reality sort of, a, and here's Capra talking about angels and uh, Stuart didn't take it well and he walked away that night not, not he—he he was not pleased, and his new agent wasn't pleased, and um, and so it it took a while of not having any offers and of thinking of this crazy story, and for Capra to call back and say, "I don't think I told that well. Can we try again?"
0: It's bad it's, when it's, a storyteller can't tell a story.
1: Yeah, but it was you know it, it was so off the wall, and so Stuart said, "Okay, you know," and basically the way he told the story years and years afterwards was you know if you want to make a picture about a guy committing suicide and an angel saving the day i'm your man and so that's how he was signed to um to do it's a wonderful life a picture that he really didn't know if it would succeed or not his only offer at the time and here he is a guy with the shakes who was just starting to put weight back on from being in the war. Uh, and, And that's where I start and end the book because it's, to me, it's the greatest story in the world, that of all pictures, this is the one he comes back to, and this is what's going on in his head while he's making it, which you don't see, you know. And the fact that when it was released, it wasn't a giant hit. Yeah. It did pretty well. It had a tremendous negative cost. Uh, it would cost a lot to produce this picture. All Capra pictures were expensive because he you know, he threw in the kitchen sink. And so it couldn't possibly make money. It did all right. You know, it, it almost broke even. There's a legend that it was a bomb, but it wasn't. I mean, it, it did well, but it, it was so expensive to produce that it took until television – uh, that it really became the beloved classic that it is today. Um, but what an interesting story! You know? What what a wonderful story uh, of how he came back from the war and made this picture.
0: Well, and you think about the story itself and say, okay, here's this man who didn't even make it to the war. I mean, the the movie takes place during the war, or you know, the lion's share of the movie, the you know, the major part of the movie is still during the war, and yet he plays a character who, because of his health, His ears, in this case, couldn't even go to the war. And knowing what you've put in this book and and the background that I suspect most people probably didn't have no way of knowing, I suspect it's going to make the viewing of the film even more interesting, given what was going on in his mind at the time, as you pointed out.
1: Hey, I hadn't thought of that. You just gave me goosebumps. But yeah, that's pretty cool to think about, that maybe it will instruct people on what they're seeing you know maybe it'll give people a little more uh, appreciation of this guy uh, that they're looking at
0: yeah unfortunately the film only gets in these days it's a christmas movie that's the way it gets portrayed and it's really not a christmas music movie except the fact that the end of it takes you know it it's framed around christmas but I don't consider that to be the important aspect of it. I think instead it's given the, the, the time period, and it probably there were a number of post-World War II films that dealt with uh, the issues of returning soldiers, where this time the movie didn't deal with returning soldiers, but the actor happened to be a returning soldier.
1: Yeah, and it's funny that, you know, in this story, his brother is the right. one who's the hero, uh and and uh George has to stay home and his brother only gets to be a hero because uh George saved his life. Right. Saved Harry's life. It's it, I don't know. There there's so much irony here. It it's it's great.
0: So obviously this book you know has is spent a lot of you know you said 3 years at least dealing with uh the research research and the writing. Mhm. Uh, Do you know what's next? I mean, do you have the next thing on your mind as to where you're going to go from here? Obviously, uh, uh, between Fireball and now this book, you've got two very great current, I mean, books about a period, generally the same period of time, even though completely different topics, but do you have something in mind for next
1: I do. I, I wish I could talk about uh, it, but it's I okay. can't because <laughs> I it's a,
0: get that it, regularly, don't
1: worry. It's about a it. terrific idea. I don't know if I can pull it off. You know, I had talked about how I didn't know if I could pull Stewart off, and I had to have this core research. Was it there?: Yes, it's there. OK, this mission is a go. Well, I have that again, but I have to actually go to Europe, <laughs> um, go back to Europe, um, to archives and find out if the information is there for my next book, and if it is then we will be back here in about four years, and you won't believe what you just read.
0: Well, I've got to say this about this book. There's so many different layers to it to me, but probably to me as a historian, librarian, I think the ability that you showed that even today you can create a story about something that it, original thought, as you pointed out right at the beginning when you were considering it, is can I even tell this story? And yet you proved it could be told. And I just hope that other, besides readers, I hope other writers look at the, at what you were able to do and say, okay, there are other stories out there to tell. Uh, not just about individuals, but I mean, you know, just periods of time mm-hmm. and, and the whole issues of what it was like for the, you know, we know, the, the normal person, well, remember, celebrities are still normal people, and seeing how the war affected them in in, in the same way as everyone else. And I, so that's why I, one of the things I I was really impressed with is that you showed what kind of research you could still do on a topic and come up with something so involved and so it presents such a great story.
1: Well, thank you. Um... That's a very high compliment. And the thing that, you know, as a person who has an affinity for history, what always bothered me, and I mean really bothered me and still does, is how any writer could manage to make history boring. (laughs) You know, because history was people living dangerous lives, living interesting lives, people overcoming fear, people being brave, people being cowards, whatever. Uh, How could you make that anything but... Fascinating and involving and exciting, um, and so that's the way I try to approach anything I write. Is like, you know, just let the story happen and and take the reader with you, and, and let's let's have an adventure together. That's the way I always look at it.
0: Well, hopefully, I know we're recording this. Even the book hasn't even isn't even scheduled to come out yet for basically a couple months still, based on when we're recording, but. Uh, I hope it it does as well as your last one. I hope it does better, obviously. Um I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to talk about it so uh in such detail as I say uh there's a lot there and I just not only do I hope people reach out for the book obviously, but I think hopefully they'll go back and look at some of his post World War 2 films starting with It's a Wonderful Life and and just to remind themselves that he was an example of a changed man because of the war, and we can actually see it on the screen. And and just when you look at his pictures,
1: in in so many of his pictures after the war, there will be blind rage. Starting in It's a Wonderful Life, when he rips up his living room um, in Winchester seventy three, he almost kills Dan Duryea. You know, over and over again, there are these blind rages that he let himself access, and that he wanted those things in his pictures because he could now understand rage. He could now let it out. It was always with him, and it was because of the war.
0: Thank you for talking to me. This was a great discussion, and uh, I hope uh, the book does very well. It should. It deserves it. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you, Joel. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Robert. Like me, I think you will look at It's a Wonderful Life differently, thinking of what Stuart had just experienced. This is Joel cherny And I will be back soon with more new books in film.